A grisly discovery made by man's best friend along the Susquehanna River near Airville, Pennsylvania in March 1948 led police into a dizzying network of circumstantial clues. We'll examine this unsolved mystery in Episode 12, The Severed Arm Mystery. Arthur Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. On March 13, 1948, a 15-year-old boy named Thomas Walker Jr. and his elder brother, 32-year-old Leon, saw their dog, a foxhound named Nell, emerging from a heavily wooded area on the family farm with an object in her mouth. It looked like it was a stick. As the dog ran closer to the two, they realized that it wasn't. The gruesome object was a severed human arm. Boys told their father who retrieved the arm from Nell. Noting that it had all five fingers and appeared to be the forearm, severed just below the elbow, he called the police. Dr. Louis C. Poosh, a pathologist employed at the York Hospital, said that in his opinion, the arm was severed from the body while the individual was alive. It was severed near the elbow, and the wound indicated a relatively crude weapon. Poosh theorized that was an axe. Owing to the well-preserved nature of the limb, he said, this was likely only three or four weeks before, and, quote, possibly only a few days ago. However, he also stated that the arm could have been preserved by the cold temperatures of the water. The Susquehanna often freezes in winter and is prone to flooding after the ice flows melt. The arm was, was the right one, apparently that of an adult female and it appeared to be from a relatively healthy individual. The fingernails were neatly manicured, and the owner was apparently not a laborer. He sent the arm on to the state police laboratory in Harrisburg for further testing. The arm was initially said to belong to a woman, but in reports published on March 18th, Dr. Poosh clarified that he had never definitively determined the sex of the arm's owner. Quote, it looked like the arm of a woman to most of those who saw it, he said, but he also didn't think anyone can definitively say whether it was a man or a woman. County Coroner Lester J. Sell expressed his belief that the remainder of the body lay in the woods of Lower Chansford Township. Visits to neighbors immediately after the arm was found revealed a few interesting clues. It had been learned from some people in the vicinity that a dark green car, a 1933 Dodge sedan with New Jersey plates, had been seen in the area on March 9th. A man was driving, accompanied by a woman in a brown fur coat. They stopped farmer A.Z. Tome around 3.30 in the afternoon 
and asked directions to Camp Minkwa, a camp operated by the YMCA along the river south of York Furnace. The site is now occupied by the Gamler Boat Launch. But Camp Minkwa was not in operation in March, and Tome told him so. Some locals claimed to have seen the car later in the day as well, but this time only the man was present. The next morning, the man, alone once again, stopped another local named Carl Bacon, and once again asked directions to Camp Minkwa. Carl's wife also found a torn-out page from a February 22nd copy of the New York Times lying along Indian Steps Road. The first full day of searching, on March 14th, revealed something surprising. Another body, this one a complete corpse, lying wedged between two rocks near the riverbank. It was dressed in a military uniform, and state policeman Leslie Jackson said that an examination of some business cards in, the, in its pocket revealed the name of Paul J. Seitz, 38, a coal inspector from Pittston in the Wilkes-Barre-Scranton area. Owing to the bodies having been in a far more advanced state of decomposition than was the arm, police didn't believe it was connected to the severed limb. Seitz, an employee of the Kehoe Burge Coal Company in Duryea, he had been born Anna Andrusis at 30 Carroll Street in Pittston. He had been depressed over a recent breakup, Mrs. Andrusis said, and had told her he was leaving town for several days. On February 27th, a report had been made in Harrisburg via phone that a man had fallen or jumped from the Walnut Street Bridge, and firemen were sent out. But nobody was, no body was recovered, no witnesses were found, and it was swiftly realized that it had been a false report and the caller had given a false name and address. There at first was an attempt by the press to connect this to the discovery of Paul Seitz's body, but... It at least seemed to be in unconnected. The opinion of most was that the body had drifted downstream from some point to the north and was stranded on the rocks by the receding floodwaters. Some pretty significant flooding had taken place this year as the ice flows melted. I'll post some pictures of the 1948 floods on the Facebook page. The body was to be released to a Pittston undertaker who was to arrive in York. And then Seitz was finally buried in Hughesville on March 17th. A blue blanket with two bullet-sized holes in it was found along the road leading from Airville to Camp Minkwa. A blood-spattered piece of a New York newspaper was also found in the same general area. I'm not certain if this was a reference to the pages found by Mrs. Bacon or not. Wilbur Robinson of Gorham, northwest of the search area, turned over a man's belt he found. And Thomas Walker, whose farm the arm was found on, found a pair of women's stockings on his property when he searched his land after the discovery of the arm. A number of tantalizing clues, but any number of which could just as easily be merely litter and detritus. The newspaper may have had some relevance, in my opinion, since it had bloodstains on it, but I remain doubtful whether any of the other clues did. Captain Harry E. McElroy, the state police's chief investigator, and other, invest and other officers were attempting to reconstruct the woman's appearance based on the arm, but, well, that seems like, that seems like it was a rather useless endeavor, honestly, and just probably a waste of time. An airplane piloted by state policeman Edward Hermeski also flew over the search area. 
keeping an eye out for any clues. This was a response to a theory, which was a bit of of a reach, even in the words of Deputy Sheriff Clyde Bensel, who first proposed it. Several area farmers, Thomas Walker included, had reported hearing low-flying planes in the area around the time of the discovery of the arm. And the deputy theorized that perhaps the body parts were dispersed by an airplane. But no further clues surfaced, and the airplane was grounded. As for the third day of the ground search, it was led by State Detective Carl Hartman, State Policeman Leslie Jackson, and York Detective John J. Carbon. A number of abandoned farms in the vicinity, called the Posey Farms, were searched for additional body parts, but fruitlessly. Police in Hagerstown, Maryland, contacted York as they had found the green car for which they had been searching. It was found abandoned March 12th at a gas station on South Potomac Street. George Miller, owner of the gas station, reported that two young men had driven up in the car. They, quote, seemed to be in a big hurry, according to Deputy Deputy Sheriff L.R. Isonogle, as they got the gas, but then they abandoned the car when it didn't start. They had said that they were catching a bus to New Jersey, but C.H. Geisbert, the supervisor at the bus terminal in town, said no one matching the descriptions had boarded the relevant bus. As the air search was underway back in Lower Chansford, Sergeant Carl Hartman and other detectives came to Hagerstown to investigate the car, which proved to have contained a few items of note. A pair of baby shoes, a partially filled bottle of milk, some tools, and signs of a possible struggle in the back seat. A pair of women's stockings and a page from the New York Times, dated February 22nd, were also found. And that newspaper page is interesting, as that's the same date as the pieces found by Mrs. Bacon, suggesting a very possible connection. Unconfirmed rumors had it that Hartman was trying to possibly establish a connection with a white slavery ring, which had operated through much of the Middle East Coast and Midwest. White slavery being, essentially, what we would today call sex trafficking. Thirteen arrests had been made in connection with the ring only a few months before, In Hagerstown, Melvin Stoneberger, Lena Michelotti, and Jackie McCoy were charged with having operated a house of prostitution on West Bethel Street. The Hagerstown raids were connected with and built on a number of raids in which 47 were arrested in Ironton and Portsmouth, Ohio, just a week before. The license plates revealed that the car belonged to a James J. Manella, who had robbed a bank in Newark and had been in prison since February 21st. The coincidence of Manella having been incarcerated on the 21st and the discovery of the two newspaper pages dated the 22nd did not escape detectives' notice. Men at the station said that one driver of the car had been a large heavyset man, about 25 to 30, and the other was a shorter slender man who was likely about 21. Both were rather scruffy-looking, in need of both a shave and a haircut, which contrasted with the suits and hats in which they were dressed. Manella had previously been arrested in Cumberland, Maryland, following a robbery at a supermarket by two associates of his. He helped conceal Joseph Kuna, one of the two, and was arrested, 
though he was later given probation, at which time he was transferred back to the custody of New Jersey, whereupon he was jailed for an outstanding charge there. Another clue that apparently went nowhere. Personally, I don't know that it can be definitively said that that car wasn't connected somehow. After all, the two drivers were never apprehended or questioned, so far as we know. Washington County Sheriff Joseph Baker said that an independent investigation was going to be conducted in Hagerstown after the Pennsylvania police left, but no word was forthcoming about that. By March 17th, the police were beginning to get frustrated. Two and a half days of searching the woods of Lower Chansford Township had turned up nothing. There is more fruitless searching this day and the next. Authorities at the Holtwood Dam were advised to keep an eye out for any body parts caught at the edge of the dam or at the intake grating for the power plant. But despite the police's frustration, things were about to happen. On March 19th, another dog in the Airville area found an apparently human bone. This dog belonged to a Mrs. Garland Van Dyke of Woodbine Road. The 12-inch armor leg bone still had some flesh attached to it. Louis C. Pouche offered a tentative statement that the remaining flesh appeared human. It was reported in an out-of-town paper that the Van Dyke bone fit perfectly with the walker arm, but this was apparently not true. Though, of course, the bones having come from the same body couldn't be ruled out, only that it wasn't from the same part of the body. On March 23rd, Charles Emenheiser, employed at the Schmidt and Alt Paper Company in York, found a cardboard box and one of the bales of scrap paper laying around the plant. When opened, the box was found to contain ten bones. According to Louis C. Pouche, these appeared to be of an adult male, although once again without the pelvis, sex could not be determined definitively. The bones were the long bones, or arm and leg bones, and a few phalanges, or toe and finger bones. Since both arm bones were found, it is unlikely that the bone box, name given by me, not the press, by the way, had any connection to the arm found the previous week. The bales of paper were shipped to the plant from all over the country, and though some papers bearing the name of a Pottsville area store were found adjacent to the box, and inquiries at area paper balers would be made, Sergeant Hartman wasn't confident anything would be found. I'm not certain whether the Pottsville authorities were ever contacted, or if the inquiries went anywhere. But oddly, Pottsville itself had its own bone mystery at the time, in the guise of a number of bones found in a burnout truck in late February. These were said to likely not be that of a human being, but in spite of this assertion, the tempting possibility that these and the bone box were connected should present itself to you, as much as it does to me. On March 24th, a dog belonging to C.E. Smith, another area farmer, also found a number of bones. But these were summarily dismissed after a bit of investigation as definitively not human. On the 29th, William Myers, a caretaker at the nearby Indian Steps Museum, called police after he had found a freshly dug mound of earth in the basement of a vacant cottage at Camp Minkwa. Leslie Jackson... Frank R. Stutz and Edward Moss, as well as York Detective John J. Carbon, rushed to the cottage, but excavating the mound turned up 
you guessed it, nothing. At this point, Detective Hartman declared that the case was almost hopeless, and that any successful resolution of it was unlikely in the extreme. Far too many variables existed to lend the case any sort of easily reached conclusion. In his final statement on the matter, however, some of the results of the extensive testing done on the arm came to light, results that may provide some sort of glimpse into whatever may have happened. First, coal dust was present under the fingernails of the hand. This suggests to me that the arm originated in the more northern areas of the state where most of the coal mines are. Second, despite Pusha's opinion on the matter, the police were still treating the Van Dyke bone as having come from the same body as the initial arm. It had been proven that the dog was not that the bone was gnawed on by the dog, and also that the bone may have been damaged in this way. It was also proven to be the humerus, the upper arm bone. Furthermore, it appears that Hartman, at the least, still considered the Hagerstown car as having possibly been connected with the case. He said it was possible that the body was brought from some distance away to be disposed of. Finally, the arm was turned over to Coroner Lester J. Cell for disposal and cremation. As of last I heard, the police were keeping the second bone found. Lancaster Intelligencer, February 24th, 1887. A reporter of the Intelligencer received an intimation a few days ago that there were in progress of development certain events which, when culminated, would startle the community. He kept a sharp lookout on the movements of certain officials who were working on the clues, and finally, by a hint dropped, was able to learn facts which, if true, will send a number of people to the gallows and others to long terms of imprisonment. Five parties will figure as defendants in the tragedy about to be related. Four men and one woman. Three are charged with murder and robbery, one with accessory before and after the fact of those crimes, and the fifth, the woman, will in all probability be used as a witness to fasten the crime on the remaining four. The history of this crime dates back to August last. On the morning of August 28th, George Dennis, an old man, a bachelor, was found dead at the home of E.B. Rudy near Bearville. Dennis boarded with Rudy for some time prior to that date. He was the owner of a fractious horse, and it was his habit to sleep in the stable where the horse was kept. On the night of August 27th, according to Rudy's story, Dennis slept for the first time in a bed at his house, and the next morning was found dead. The records show that Deputy Coroner E.H. Burkholder held an inquest on August 28th. The jurors were J.W. Dillerman, Martin D. Hess, Isaac Hoover, Abijah D. Kreider, Daniel Slow, and John Graybill. The witnesses examined by the coroner were Ida Rudy, E.B., and Reuben Herman. Dr. H.G. Raymond Snyder was, was the physician. The verdict of the jury was that death resulted from paralysis of the heart. James Dennis, a brother of the deceased, appears as prosecutor of what he claims to be his brother's murderers. His suspicions that all was not right were first aroused on the day the inquest was held, by the refusal of the Rudys to allow him to be present when the testimony was taken. 
He concluded to await development and has been quietly gathering evidence ever since. His belief is that Dennis was murdered in the stable and his body was carried to the house and placed in the bed where it was when the coroner held the inquest. He says he will be able to prove that there were black and blue marks on the face, a discoloration under the eye, marks on his body, and that the undertaker will testify that when he laid him in the coffin, his, his one hand, which was under the head and lifting him to the coffin, was covered with blood, showing that there was a wound where it could not be seen by the coroner. The undertaker, it is also said, will testify that the way in which the head could be moved from side to side would indicate that the neck was broken. E.B. Rudy, Reuben Herman, and Martin D. Hess are the parties charged with the murder and robbery of the deceased, and Samuel Ellsworth and the young girl, Ida Rudy, as the accessors. Rudy is a young man who has figured in the quarter sessions court. About Herman and Ellsworth, but little is known. Martin D. Hess, who stands charged with this high crime, was once an honored citizen of this county. He held the important office of Recorder of Deeds for a term. For years he has gradually been on the downward grade, his great weakness being a love for strong drink. While it was generally believed that he would resort to scurvy tricks to get money for rum, no one would have considered him capable of being a party to the highest offense known to the law. Mart Hess lives several miles distant from the home of Rudy, and yet he was on hand to be called as a juror to inquire into the cause of death of this man he was accused of murdering. Of the other defendants, Ida Rudy, E.B. Rudy, and Reuben Herman were the sole witnesses examined by the, current, by the coroner. The deceased, James Dennis says, was possessed of $5,400 to $5,600 in cash, which he always carried about with him. After his death and effects were examined, only $80 were found. It was known that he was miserly in the extreme, and the absence of the money, the allegation being that the accused appropriated it, would indicate that robbery was the motive for the murder. The deceased was the owner of a peculiar made pocketbook, and a diligent search was made in his chest for it, but it could not be found. James Dennis inquired about this pocketbook, and said it was very queer that it had disappeared. He was told to make another search, and this time the book was found in the chest, which before had been thoroughly overhauled. All of the accused prior to the 27th of August were in very moderate circumstances. In fact, they were never known to have, met to have money. For some time after Dennis's death, they made no display of money, but for the last few months they have been spending money very lavishly. It is related that when the tax collector called on one of the above parties for tax owed to him, he said, I ain't got it now, but I'll get it from E.B. Rudy, and if he don't give it to me, I will put him in jail for eight or ten years, or hang the son of a bitch. And that's the end of this episode. A list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77, lowercase f, lowercase d, all one word, at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so until next episode, this is Andrew, signing off.